Matthew chapter 21 in your Bible. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through verse 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was written by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. He healed them. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith. I want to talk to you this morning on the topic, salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can open your word, that we can read this text. We thank you for communicating with us. We ask that you would speak to us through this word. We believe this is your word. We believe that Jesus comes near to us. God, let us experience him this morning as we study. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. He never did take the faith very seriously. He flirted with other women that were not his wife. 
He lied to his boss. He took advantage of his friends. When he cheated on his wife, I thought for sure that his life would be now ruined. But it only improved. Now that he was single, no longer tied, he was able to take that lucrative job in California in that booming industry. He now makes four times what I make, and he spends the majority of his money with his friends, eating good food and drinking good wine. There are those who reject Jesus as king and seem to live a better life than I do. You ever felt that? I know one of you, two of you maybe. Have you ever felt that way? What do we do when we're trying to live a faithful life? The king uh, and the wicked seem to prosper all around us. We're trying to live in faithfulness, and all the while, prosperity preachers are patting their pocket with the offerings of the poor, yet their ministries look fruitful. We're trying to live a faithful life, yet those who are Christians with, with quotation marks in name only seem to be better off than we are, yet they make no sacrifices for Christ. We're trying to live a faithful life, yet the irreligious seem to have a, more joy, more happiness, a better marriage, nicer things than we do. Look at verse 5 in the text this morning. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Let me just give you some context for this this morning, and I think this will help you. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has been hiding his identity. Have you noticed that as we've been studying this gospel? It's, he's like been muting it. He's been hushing it. Don't tell anybody who I am. Don't say anything. Now, Jesus enters into Jerusalem full steam ahead, Announcing his identity, leading directly to the cross. He comes into Jerusalem as what? Behold your, help me out. He comes into Jerusalem now as the king. He comes in, yes, humble on the, the back of a donkey, we call this the triumphal entry. Yet he comes in also, in some ways as I read this text, he comes in like a whirlwind. He comes in turning over tables. He comes in making everybody upset. He comes in overturning the religious establishment of the day. He comes in overturning the oppressor. He comes in, yes, with salvation, and he comes in with 
judgment. Now listen, since Jesus, saves us through judgment, which is what we're going to see in this text. We can trust Him even when the wicked seem to prosper. Since Jesus saves, since He brings salvation through judgment, we can trust Him even when those around us who reject Him as King seem to do better than we, than we are. You see, our issue is that since there are people who reject Jesus as king but seem to live a better life than we do, our temptation is to just join them and reject Jesus as king. Since Jesus comes with salvation through judgment, we can trust him when those who oppress us seem to get away with it. Now, these three stories that I just read to you, they kind of seem random, don't they? The, the first story here, Jesus comes in to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem on, on a donkey. And then before we know it, second story, he's, he's in the temple and he's doing stuff. And he's making commotion. He's turning over tables and yelling at everybody. And now he's cursing a fig tree in the third story. Now listen, this will help you. Matthew is not written chronologically. Matthew is not a book written uh, one scene after another in the way that it happened, but Matthew is written topically, all right? So Matthew is taking various events that happened, now in this case, during the week in between Jesus' triumphal entry and the cross. He's taking various events that happened, and he's arranging them topically to make a point for us. Are you with me? What is the point that Matthew is making here in Matthew 21? Now, I believe that this text and this, these events are firmly rooted in the book of Zechariah. Can we turn there for a second? You may have never turned to Zechariah before. It's, it's in the Old Testament. It's actually back just a couple pages from Matthew. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament. Zechariah was a, a prophet who prophesied uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem some years after, uh, after Babylon had come in and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Zechariah prophesied about 500 years before Christ was born. Now, to give you a little context with the book of Zechariah, he's dealing with this reality that there, are e there is evil in the world and the enemies seem to get away with it. The enemy seems to prosper. Jerusalem continues to lie in ruin while Babylon seems to be doing really well. Oh, and by the way, there's corruption even in Jerusalem. Even those in the house are corrupt. So when we get to Zechariah chapter 9 then, if you want to turn there in the first couple verses, in verses 1 through 8, what we see is judgment. We see God bringing judgment on the enemies of Israel. It's prophesied. It's happening. It's going to happen. And then there's this shift that takes place in verse 9. Actually, before we, let me show you that, something else here. Go to chapter 14. 
chapter 14, verse, verse 4. It says, on this day, on that day, so this is the day of the Lord, the day that the judgment will come, all right, on the enemies of God. On, the day, on, on that day, His feet, meaning Yahweh's feet, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Everybody say, Mount of Olives. That lies before Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. There's just this crazy picture of, of Yahweh standing on the Mount of Olives and, and his feet on one side and the other side, and then the mountain splits and the mountain moves. This is a picture of judgment. It's a picture of judgment against the corruption within Jerusalem. It's a picture of judgment against the enemies of God. Now, you might notice Zechariah chapter 9 then takes a turn in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sound familiar? Let's go back to Matthew. What's Matthew saying? What's Matthew's point with all of this? Look at verse 21, verse, or chapter 21, verse 1. Where is Jesus at? On what mountain? The Mount of Olives. Sound familiar? His feet on the Mount of Olives. What is this saying, by the way, about Jesus' own identity? Yahweh is to stand on the Mount of Olives and pronounce judgment on the corruption within Jerusalem. Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is, is at the center. By the way, verse 21 and 22, later on when Jesus tells his disciples that you can say to this mountain, move and it'll move, what do you think he's getting at? I think he's getting at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, where the mountain moves, where Yahweh stands on the mountain and it splits. He's saying, you're going to join me in this great work of God. You're actually joining me in the judgment of the enemies of God. But not just judgment. Look at verse 5. He quotes Zechariah 9.9, and he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king is coming to you. That sounds like salvation, doesn't it? The daughter of Zion, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we want you to know that the king is coming. And he's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy. By the way, 500 years before, God had already knew that he would providentially and sovereignly place a donkey right there waiting for his disciples to come grab it. And here we see the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. I want to break, break down these two themes, and I want to break it down with this phrase, Jesus is the King bringing salvation through judgment. Jesus is the King bringing salvation through judgment. Let's, let's start off with just this, Jesus is the King bringing salvation. Frederick Douglass our Baltimorean from history, talking about how salvation is going to come to the slaves. He said it's going to come 
through an earthquake and through a whirlwind. But then he goes on and he, he actually, <coughs> excuse me, he addresses those who would like to see salvation come uh, through just sort of like, you know, nice things and just nice conversations. And let's not rock the boat. You know, let's, let's not agitate. He, Frederick Douglass says this. He says, there are those who profess to favor freedom, yet they depreciate agitation. These are men who want rain without thunder and lightning. With Jesus bringing thunder and lightning, what we have to also recognize is that He's bringing salvation. He's bringing freedom to us. So in verse 5, daughters of Jerusalem, these are the inhabitants of the city. Why is He coming? What's it for? Look at verse 9. They tell us they're singing a song, and the song says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is an old word that just means, oh, save. Or save now. Son of David is a messianic term. Very strong messianic term, by the way. Recognizing Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, and He's come as the King. And Oh, save us. Save us now. Save us quickly. What does the crowd do? We see their responses as He comes in. I believe these are probably the followers of Jesus coming into the city, not the inhabitants of the city. And, and the crowd, they're, they're taking their cloaks off, and they're throwing their cloaks in the street before Him, which is a sign of their submission. They're, they're laying what they have down on the ground. They're laying all that they have in front of Him and saying, just trample it. You are ours. We, we, we are yours. You're all that we have. They're taking palm branches and they're putting the palm branches in front of him as, 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 as he comes into the city, which is a signifier of, uh, of victory that Jesus is bringing with him as the king coming into Jerusalem. Sounds a lot like what we do on the Lord's Day, doesn't it? We sing. We recognize that we are submissive to Jesus. We submit ourselves to His Lordship together with one voice. We celebrate the victory. Some of us shout. Some more of us need to shout, I think, at times. They're shouting here. Everybody shout. Thank you. Shout this. Shout Hosanna. Son of David. That's probably a little bit more like what it sounded like. We're too quiet. Somebody shout. Thank you. Oh, save. Save us. Do you really believe that he's the Messiah? Do you believe that he has come as king? Oh, Hosanna, save us. That's what they're singing. That's what they're shouting. And even the kids are doing it. In verse 15, all the kids in the room, if you've got a Bible open, look at verse 15. The children are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The kids are singing. The kids get it. Kids in the room. Don't ever think that worshiping God is just something for your parents to do. This is why, by the way, we have kids in our services together. Because we worship as a family. We don't remove the kids and have them do something. No, we worship together. 
We want to hear the kids say, say Hosanna. And sometimes kids, maybe you, you'd be, you need to shout. Maybe your parents are too quiet. And say amen once in a while. Or, yes! Jesus is coming to save all kinds of people. There's blind people here. There's lame people here. There's probably Gentiles in the mix. Of course, kids and, and his followers and Jews. And with 314 murders in Baltimore City, we better sing Hosanna. We need to sing Hosanna. God, save us. God, save us from our fear. God, save us from our shame. God, save us from our guilt. Listen, if you're not a believer... I want you to at least examine and explore these claims that Jesus makes of himself in this text. For instance, let me just show you a couple. In verse 3, Jesus calls himself Lord. He references himself as Lord. In verse uh, 16, when the kids are shouting out, and then the kids get in trouble by the religious establishment, and Jesus defends the kids, what does he quote? He quotes Psalm 8-2 in verse in verse uh, 16, out of the mouth of babes, nursing babies and infants, you have prepared praise. Let me just say something about that psalm, Psalm 18, or Psalm 8. That is a psalm about worshiping and praising Yahweh. And Jesus is quoting it in reference to what the kids are saying about him. God has prepared praise. For me, you got to deal with the claims that Christ brings himself. He claims to be king. He claims here to be savior. He claims to be Messiah. He claims to be divine. I love C.S. Lewis's old quote. He said, Lewis said, you know, Jesus was either a lunatic or he was Lord. Because if he wasn't Lord... He's crazy. We, you cannot say, I respect Jesus, I'm just not a Christian. If, I, if Jesus is not Savior and Lord of all, if he is not divine, King, Messiah, he is not respectable. He's a lunatic. But I think he's Lord. I know he's Lord. Secondly, Jesus is bringing salvation. Keep that in mind. He's bringing salvation. How? He's bringing salvation through judgment. That's what we see in this text. In C.S. Lewis's uh, book, Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, my favorite line in the book is when young Susan is trying to get to know who this Aslan character is. And so she's having this conversation with Mr. Beaver. And she clearly puts it out there that she thinks Aslan is a person. And Mr. Beaver corrects her, and, and he says, no, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? 
I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Kings aren't safe. Kings have authority. Kings have power. But if he's a good king, if he's a good king, he's unsafe with the wicked. If he's a good king, he's good to the faithful. This king comes with judgment, and he's not safe. Jesus is not safe. Don't We can't just like throw ideas about Jesus around as if he's safe. He's not just like some bobblehead that we put on our dashboard or a figure on a t-shirt. He's not safe like that. We can't contain him. He's the king, and kings aren't safe, but he's a good king. He comes with judgment. Look at the judgment in this text. In verse 10, it says that the whole city is, is shaken by him as he comes. They're stirred. This actually is a reminder of Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, where it also says the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred. What's that referring to? It's, it's, it's a reference to the religious establishment of Jerusalem. They are the whole of Jerusalem in this text. And it's saying that everybody, all the religious, the the, the people of Jerusalem, they were shaken at his birth, and they're now shaken as he comes in to conquer. Why? It's because the religious establishment is corrupt. It's because there is uh, mad corruption in the land. Let me just talk to you a little bit about the corruption that's taking place in verses 12 and 13. What do we see Jesus doing? He's in the temple, right, where people are selling things, and he goes in and he's overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. What, What is that? What's going on? Is this just simply Jesus is upset because people are selling stuff in church? I don't think that that's really just the issue. I don't think, like, for instance, uh, a church would be, you know, breaking what God wants if they were to sell a a Christian book or something like that. I think what what he's getting at here is something much more about injustice, much more about taking advantage of the poor. You see, Jerusalem was the epicenter of worship. It was the epicenter of messianic activity and, and expectation, anticipation. And so, because of the diaspora, Jews would, were scattered all over the, the place. And then there were Gentiles who were known as God-fearers that would come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So kind of think of Washington, D.C. a little bit. D.C. in some ways is like our Jerusalem, for lack of a better meaning like people make pilgrimages to D.C. to pay homage to American history and whatever. Look at museums. So people make uh, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, not to pay homage, but to worship Yahweh. Now, as they're coming, they're coming with their currency of all the different 
surrounding countries. And they can't use their pagan money in the temple, and so there are money changers who take their currency and they give them temple currency that they can use. And as history tells us, they're taking advantage of people. They're charging huge fees. They're not giving the correct amount of, uh, of exchange. They're making money off of these folks. And what are they using their currency for? It's to buy sacrifices. They're buying, he says, pigeons. It says, you know, pigeons are the sacrifice for what people group? The poor, exactly. Those who can't afford. They're taking advantage of the poor. According to history, the, there would be people who would bring their own pigeons, and then when they would get there, the priest would judge that this pigeon is not good enough, and you need to buy one of our pigeons. So they go to try to buy it. Well, we don't take that money. You'll have to go over there and uh, get your money exchanged for the temple currency. Get it exchanged, buy one of their pigeons. It's a racket. The religious establishment learned how to make money off these folks. They were schemers, taking advantage of the poor and the Gentiles and people, the traveler, the pilgrims. So Jesus comes in, and he's, he's coming in with judgment. He's coming in overturning these tables, and, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer. Which he's quoting there, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And if you were to turn to Isaiah 56, 7, what you would see is that verse continues, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, it says. For all kinds of people. Not just for the wealthy, not just for the, for, for the people that have it all together. My house is to be a house of prayer for everybody. And in the the courtyard of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles could come to pray, the poor there are being taken advantage of. They're being ripped off. And then Jesus, as a result, he calls them a, 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 a den of thieves, or he says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves. In the ancient world, dens were used by robbers, by thieves. They would get together in dens, and that would be where they would strategize and plot their next their next move, that's where they would store their money that they've stolen. What a claim Jesus is making here against the religious establishment. As they are schemers, as they are padding their pockets off of the poor. What is the point? The point that Matthew is making is judgment. Jesus is coming, not just as Savior, but He's coming as judge. What's up with the fig tree that comes later on? The third story. He curses this fig tree. Is Jesus just, you know I, know, I know I get grumpy when I get hungry. It says Jesus was hungry. Maybe He was just hungry and He went and was like, oh, finally I found some fig tree where I can, no, no fruit on it. Curse it, you fig tree. Now, that's not it. Fig tree would be a representative for Israel, Jerusalem in particular. And he's laying a curse on this symbol of Jerusalem. This time of year, there should be fruit, small fruits on this fig tree. 
If there are leaves, there should be fruits. Jesus, as he comes to the tree, he finds leaves, but he finds no fruit, meaning the tree is, is beautiful, it's, it's promising, but it doesn't deliver. It doesn't nourish. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's saying, Jerusalem is, is beautiful. Jerusalem is promising, but it fails to deliver. Because of the corruption in the land, it fails to produce fruit. With some modern-day examples today of, of this judgment that, that comes, there, uh, we, there, there are people in our society who take advantage of the poor, preachers who pad their pockets off of the ties of, the, uh, of people f- based on false promises that they've been given. People who are Christians in name only, and they're hypocrites, and they're going around with no concept of Jesus as their king. There are the ungodly in the land who, who seem to live better lives than we do. Listen, this is the point. Just because something looks good doesn't mean that it's truly fruitful. Just because something looks beautiful doesn't mean that it's really got anything there to offer. Just because something looks promising doesn't mean that it's going to deliver at the end of the day. Now, here's a question that I ask myself. Why curse the tree that's already not producing fruit? The tree doesn't have any fruit on it, and what does Jesus do? He says, you will never again produce fruit. Well, it reminds me of Romans 1, doesn't it? Those who reject God, those who turn from God and turn to their sin, it says God will give them over to the hardness of their heart. God will take away from them even the ability to repent. God will take away from them even the ability to produce fruit. This is, Jesus is giving the fig tree over to its sickness. The point, again, Jesus comes with judgment. Judgment brings salvation. Look at verse 14. Who is it that's in the temple coming up to Jesus? The lame, right? And the blind. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 21, the lame and the blind are not allowed in the temple. And so evidently, during the commotion of flipping tables and everything that's going on, the blind and the lame have kind of snuck in the back door, and they're coming up to Jesus now in the temple. Now, what, why is Jesus healing them? What's going on with him opening the eyes of the blind and and healing the lame in the temple, what he's doing is this. Jesus is removing from them the barrier that they have between them and the sanctuary of God. No longer will there be a barrier. All people who come to Jesus will be healed and will be able to come into the sanctuary of God and pray. Don't you see that as Jesus brings judgment on the corruption of the religious establishment, he is also simultaneously bringing with him salvation for the blind and the lame. Verse 
ISIS rears its head, persecutes, destroys. We pray, God, bring comfort, bring salvation to those who are being persecuted. And listen, that may come through the persecutor repenting. But if it doesn't, God, bring judgment. God, bring judgment. God, bring justice. How does God bring justice to victims of racism? How does he bring salvation, in a sense, temporarily speaking, to victims of racism? He does it through judgment on the racist. If a young girl is kidnapped, how do we save the young girl? We kick the door down, and me and Montrell run in there and grab the guy and put him in a headlock, and we bring our judgment on the kidnapper. Don't you see? Judgment brings salvation. Jesus brings salvation through judgment. Those who oppress you will be judged. I know it seems like they're getting away with it. I know they've said lies about you. I know that you want so bad to go after them and to mar them on Facebook. But that won't do anything, so please don't do that. It just makes you look stupid. And that's the problem. Listen, friends, God will bring judgment. Whether it is on their own head or whether it was judgment that was placed onto the shoulders of Christ, there will be judgment for the enemy, for the oppressor. You see, the great irony in this story is that as Jesus comes in to bring salvation through judgment, He does not merely pronounce judgment, but Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to receive judgment. Not judgment that He deserves, but judgment that I deserve. The primary reason Jesus comes into Jerusalem is to be the recipient of judgment. This is why he doesn't come in on a war horse. This is why he comes in on a humble donkey. It's because Jesus comes in to the city to serve. To serve you and to serve me. To take the judgment that we deserve on his own body. I love this quote by Augustus Toplady, who said once, When Christ entered into Jerusalem, the people spread garments in the way. When He enters into our hearts, we pull off our own righteousness and not only lay it under Christ's feet, but trample upon it ourselves. As we come into this text, we realize that we are the guilty, that we have nothing good to offer, that I am the guilty party. I am the accuser. We are the hypocrites. We are the nominal Christians. We are the, uh, the irreligious. We are those who abuse the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, don't you see this is why we preach the gospel? We are recipients of His mercy. We are recipients of His grace. If God came with judgment and without grace, none of us would stand. 
How is it that our church can stand on that day of judgment? Is it because of all the great things we've done? Absolutely not. We lay that before Christ and we trample on them ourselves. We can stand on the day of judgment because Jesus brought us salvation through judgment. He brought us salvation through dying on the cross for our own sins. He stands in our place, the religious hypocrite, the Christian, the irreligious. He suffers for us. He withers. He fades. He dies. And through it all, Jesus brings us salvation. Have you ever known that salvation? Do you know the mercy of God in your life? Have you ever trusted that in Jesus Christ to be the forgiver and Savior of your soul? Have you ever believed and understood and embraced the reality that your own judgment that you deserve was placed onto Christ? Have you seen Christ as your servant? Oh, friends, cry out to Him, Hosanna. Oh, save us, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What is our response? The announcement has come, daughters of the earth, your king comes to you. Friends, what is your heart's response when you hear that? How do we respond when we hear the, 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 the claim, the announcement that Jesus, the King, has come to us? I hope, I hope our response is the response of His followers. Hosanna. Hosanna, oh, save us, Lord, save us. Hosanna, I am a hypocrite. Hosanna, I look good on the outside, but on the inside I have got nothing to offer. Hosanna, you are the son of David, the Messiah. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, I'm dealing with guilt. Hosanna, I'm dealing with fear. Hosanna, I'm dealing with shame. Lord, save us. He is your King. He is your Savior. Salvation has come through judgment. Listen, since salvation comes through judgment, you can trust Him even when the wicked seem to prosper. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the great truth of the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Messiah, Hosanna. God, save us and let us trust you, even when those who harm us seem to get away with it. Amen.